1 Samuel chapter 30, and we'll read the entirety of the chapter. Follow along with me if you would, please. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Hinoam of Jezreel, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him. And they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of a cake, figs, and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will take you down to this band. When he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. 
He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir and Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtomiah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jehermielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our title this morning is The King Who Gives. As much as next week doesn't sound so Christmassy in its theme, this week actually lends itself to the season of the year we find ourselves in today. To recap for a moment, you will remember from chapter 29 that David, who had been working with the Philistines for a year and some months, had brought himself into a situation where his schemes and plans had left him in a dark place. David had been for a year and some months taking out different tribes around Ziklag that didn't belong to either Israel or the Philistines and kind of getting away with playing both sides until finally Achish, the king over David in the the land of the Philistines, said, you're going to march out with me against Israel. And there we know that David had some sort of a conflict. Either he had planned on just saying, well, this is where I wholeheartedly buy in. I am now a Philistine. I'm going against my own people, against my own God. Or that he would try to perhaps trick Achish, to turn the tide of the war by going against the one under whom he was meant to follow. In the sovereignty of God, we saw that the rejection of the world that David experienced by the Philistines as they sent him away was also the direction that the Lord had for him. And I said last week that David had a really important reason to come home. And now as we come to chapter 30, we see exactly why. Of course, he could have no reason to believe that his own family and the families of 600 other men were perfectly safe and sound in Ziklag. They had hidden there, as it were, for over a year, and everything had been going well. Today, he sees really the the grander and more horrifying fruit of chasing after his own plans and schemes. We need to see in this passage, as David turns his eyes back onto the king who gives back to the one who, in whom he finds grace and then shares that grace. It's truly the same thing that David needed to do. What we need to gather from this is, is what David gathered from this moment, is what uh, Israelites and Jews for centuries afterwards have, have looked to this passage and found a king who gives, and who gives freely, who gives abundantly and graciously. We need to find that same king in this passage today. Because the truth is, is that wherever we find ourselves in the process of life, receiving grace is a necessary thing. It is truly our only option from the beginning to the end of whatever season we find ourselves in. 
The king who gives does so abundantly and is worthy of our trust in the darkest pains of life. This is where David and his men find themselves in this passage. In a dark place. We're going to look at this passage in three different sections. Verses 1 through 10, we'll see a horrific homecoming. Verses 11 through 20, a providential rescue. And then verses 21 through 31, we will see how the king who gives shares the spoil. First of all, as David comes home, the author, of course, leaves us with no gap here between the departing of David from the Philistines straight to him coming home to finding out really the thing that no, a, no parent wants to find out, no spouse wants to come home to, um, an emptiness. Certainly their, their city had burned and, and much of their livelihood was gone. But what drew them to this deep place of mourning, of course, was what would draw any of us. Their wives, their children, there was no sign of them. In some ways, that was even more horrifying than if they would have seen their remains, if they would have seen that they had indeed been killed. I mean, that, that's awful. But, but at this point, realize, too, that the author tells us it was the Amalekites. David and his men don't know if it was the Amalekites. Presumably, they have no idea who's done this terrible thing. Let's think about the men with David again. We've kind of let them be in the background for a while, truly since all the way back in really chapter 22 when they first showed up. So let's think again to 1 Samuel 22. As we consider the horror that they come home to, let's remember where they started. These are the men who, it says in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 22, were in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul. When David had to flee Saul, and then ultimately flee his home in Judah and Bethlehem, these men gathered around David and looked to him to be their leader, their commander, their future king, surely their hopes were. But they began in distress, debt, and bitterness of soul. They gathered to a king to see if he could give them what they needed. And for a good while, David did. Well, a little more than a year. Things seemed to be working out. As David is in this strange in-between season. I don't know if you've ever been in an in-between season like David finds himself here. Certainly you're probably not roaming around the Middle East trying to you know, figure out what to do until you become king. But that period of waiting can be very difficult. Especially if you're starting from, again, verse 27, where David says, there's nothing better for me than that I should leave the land of Israel because Saul's just going to kill me. If you come to that kind of place of despair, I mean, the truth is, is that David fits in really well with these guys because we've seen him in distress. We've seen him bitter in soul and hopeless, listening to himself rather than talking to himself. But now, all that was received from following David is in one sense, completely gone. In that moment, everything that they had trusted, and not only for that year and some change in the land of the Philistines, but for a handful of years prior to that too. Everything that they had built was taken from them. In verse 4 of our chapter this morning, 30, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. It was good for us this morning, church, to put ourselves in verse 4. And remember a time where you have wept so hard that you had no more strength to weep. 
This is where they are. This is what God is pointing us to in his word this morning to, to sit in this horrific moment. Not that we should drudge up the past and all the, the fears. That's not the point. But, but to realize that the human experience here in chapter 30 is the human experience that we have today. And that the answer to their situation is grace, is a king who gives, and so it is for us. Well, in this moment for them, some unknown enemy has brought them deeper sorrow than what first brought them to David. So what do they do? Some of them plot to kill David. Might sound a little bit extreme. We know from the story, and if we've read through 1 Samuel, we know things end up a lot better than this moment here. But again, if we put ourselves in the moment, you can understand how these who have lost everything would look to the one from whom they received everything, in a sense, and want to do away with him. Of course, they know that killing David wasn't going to bring back their families or their fortunes. But certainly it would bring some sense of fairness, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be our hope in in wanting to see the one who is the cause for our problems receive some of that trouble or maybe even more? Doesn't that, to our own fallen hearts, corrupted by sin, stir up some sense of justice? I mean, at this point, they're without their families and they're without a clue to where to find them. Church, as we look at this passage, we need to consider the ways we might give in to dark situations through acting out dark deeds. These men were looking for a fallen notion of fairness or a sinful sense of fairness. And with what they could perceive on their own, the only option was killing David. That to them seemed to be the only thing that would even possibly bring them closer to feeling slightly better about where they found themselves. They had no strength left in them, but they could conjure strength up within themselves to stone David. Isn't that fascinating? They come to a place of utter weakness from their weeping. They couldn't weep anymore, but the thing that might strengthen them would be their ability to grab onto an action that might bring them justice. Sound familiar at all? We may not see ourselves today in danger of stoning a leader. At least I personally hope not. But murder is just the extreme fruit of seeking this fallen sense of fairness or justice. So what action do you take when you've done your part, but things don't pan out the way you want? Again, from the perspective of these men who have journeyed with David for years now, they've apparently done everything David said. And this is what they get. So what do you do in that kind of scenario? Who do you end up blaming? How is that blame expressed? Again, I don't imagine that we here have literal blood on our hands for our seeking our own notion of fallen fairness. And it may even be so minuscule as just to be waiting and looking for that opportunity for that other person whom we could blame for our trouble to find some of the trouble of their own. And I think that we can all confess that in our hearts there's been moments where rather than seeing that person in trouble and going to prayer for them, saying, Lord, deliver them from this, our first notion is probably more like, serves them right. Fallen fairness. What is your fallen sense of fairness? 
What is it you would like to see done to somebody because of what's happened to you? I know you're all good Christian people in here. You don't have that sense, right? We don't have that sense perhaps with our, the people we're closest with, but is there somebody that maybe you see on a screen making decisions from a faraway land that affect your life immediately, that affect even your grocery bill? You might think, I'd really like to see him suffer a little bit for what he's done in my life. We turn the tables, though, with the perspective of the men, and we go over to David now. And looking through David's eyes next, and the author gives us reason to sort of put some compassion on David here. Yeah, he's the leader, but look, he was greatly distressed. His wives had already been taken captive. And on top of that distress, now he has the greater distress of the people wanting to stone him. What if this gains traction? I mean, you can imagine that perhaps David has a couple tracks in his mind. One might be, maybe it'd just be better if they stone me anyway. That would certainly get me out of the mess that I've been in. Maybe I can make promises to them that I'm going to find. I mean, don't, don't we do that? Don't you hear leaders doing that? I promise you, in 2024, our church growth is going to be incredible. And just wait to see what God's going to do in the new year. I, I've sat through and heard different New Year's messages that, that carry this political promise to them. <laughs> David doesn't go that route. He's distressed. He finds himself again where he was after his second meeting with Saul where he let Saul go. And he said, there's nothing better for me now. I, I guess I'm just going to have to give up and join the Philistines. If you can't beat them, join them. But something's different here. Something clicks. What is it? In verse 6, David was greatly distressed. The people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter and bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Why? Why didn't he do that in chapter 27? Why is it that you sometimes strengthen yourself in the Lord and sometimes you don't strengthen yourself in the Lord? It's a legitimate question I would really like answered. Why in my own life do I have times where everything seems to fall apart and I go, but I'm going to go to God's word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to sing his praises. I'm going to trust in him. And I'm going to have that peace that he promised me. And then there are other times where everything seems to be falling apart in my life and I don't do that. What's the dysfunction in here, right? What is it that at times I'm led to do the right thing and at other times I couldn't be further from it? David was distressed, but he strengthens himself. Now, this word distress is interesting. It actually can be translated in other passages as narrowing in. And I thought that was a cool image for us to kind of get of, of imagining, you know, kind of the street that he's on, just going from a four lane to a three lane to a two lane to a one lane to a, one of your wheels is kind of off in the grass and you're bumpy on this side. And his life is narrowing in on him, his decisions, the weight of everything. I mean, just imagine how overwhelming it must have been for David to bear the weight of up to 600 or more families for their future. Well, what are we going to do? I mean, everybody's looked to David up to this point. They've always done what he said. We never hear anything of, you know, Mahala Eliel standing up saying, why don't you all follow me? Because they trusted David. He was a good and effective leader. But this is a huge weight. 
And sometimes our fallen sense of fairness just wants others to see that we aren't as bad as the fruit of our own actions. Because a third option between saying, hey, let's just let them stone me, or maybe I'll make promises, a third option might have been like, hey, can you guys cut me some slack here? Could you just see this isn't as easy as I've made it look for the past few years? I mean, I can imagine there were plenty of people in David's crew who just looked at him as a man who could do no wrong. And even when he said, hey, we're going to the land of the Philistines, a lot of them were probably just like, sure, if you say so, boss, let's go. Everything I have is due to David. Can you imagine David just kind of saying, why doesn't somebody else have an idea here? Why can't anybody be compassionate towards me and see that this is not as easy as it looks? Well, based on what we've seen of David's schemes and plans in chapter 27 and 29, it's clear that David has come to the end of himself. Everything has narrowed in. He doesn't have those options. He's not going to convince people to cut him a break. He's not going to convince them by fake promises that he's giving. And he's not going to go the route of just letting them have their own sense of fallen fairness. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He has one true and right course of action. And that is the gift, church, that the narrowing of your life gives you. When all you have left and you say that line that we all say it, I guess all we can do now is pray. Like it's our last resort. Like it's the only thing left. We haven't tried. We've tried everything else. We've exhausted all our other resources. All of our other plans have come to naught. So we might as well try this very Christianly thing of seeking the Lord for that. You know, Sometimes I look at passages like this, especially in light of chapter 28, where we saw Saul trying to hear from the Lord. Do you remember? He didn't hear him through a prophet. He didn't have any priests around. He didn't have the Urim and the Thurim. He ends up saying, if the only thing I can do is go talk to a witch so I can talk to Samuel, then I'll do that. I mean, Saul was at the end of his line too. His life had narrowed in on him with the Philistine threat of war. Like, full-out war. That hasn't happened yet in this book. But something different happens with David. Because when David returns to the Lord, the Lord strengthens him. This second half of verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It was the one true and right course of action. But there has to be some difference. Do you remember with Saul, we were talking about him at the end of his visit with the witch, and and he talked to Samuel by this incredible grace of God. Samuel was raised from the dead for a moment, at least his spirit was, and Samuel tells Saul, hey, it's all over. There's nothing you can do. You're going to die tomorrow. Saul would have had this window to say, Lord, that is exactly what I deserve. That is the fairness of, of the king. That is not my fallen sense of fairness. But he doesn't do that. He eats his last meal, continuing on the path that he was on before he even heard from Samuel for the last time. What's different with David here? Why is Saul different than David? I hope that one of the things that you've seen as we've gone through these 30 chapters now is that the main thing that separates David and Saul is God's choosing. That is it. That is the main difference. Because the story goes, again, way back in the beginning, Israel saying, you know what? We want a king. And we want a king like what? Like the nations. 
And Samuel said, if you have a king like the nations, he's going to take everything from you. He's going to take your sons and make them soldiers. He's going to take your daughters and make them slaves. He's going to take all your livestock. He's going to take all your land. Take, 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 take. That's the kind of king you want if you want a king like the nations. And so Saul is chosen. He's chosen as a representative so that God could say, here is what you asked for. And church, is it not true that we are always better off when God doesn't give us exactly what we ask for sometimes? Sometimes. We've seen that to be true in our lives as we've walked with Christ. David is the king of God's choosing. And one of the ways in which God equips his king is that in the moment where David is at his lowest, his heart is compelled to approach the Lord in humility. We don't have an exposition of David's prayer here. This would have been, I would have thought, a great platform for writing a psalm. David comes in humility to the God who has remained, look at it again, put your eyes on verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. His, that is that singular first or singular possessive noun. He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Church, he hasn't been doing that. This is his big revival, his great awakening moment. He's taken that one true and right course of action. See, the difference with David and Saul, as we see it with our eyes on paper here, is that when Saul was at his lowest, he strengthened himself with a witch's meal. But when David was at his lowest, he strengthened himself with the Lord his God. You remember, this language is so important because Saul only ever talks to Samuel about the Lord your God. Do you remember that? David is the one who belongs to the Lord God and to whom the Lord God belongs as well. And if we're in Christ, we can say that he is our God. He is our king who gives. And this is David's turning point because David's the one God's chosen. We can see God's sovereign direction bringing David to this critical moment and freely giving him the strength he could only find in the king who gives. And I think it's so special that we don't have a conversation between David and God where God says, well, 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 you finally wised up. Because that's how I perceive God way too often. When I come to the end of myself and whatever task I'm doing and I say, well, Lord, all I can do now is pray, I always expect God to have this attitude of, well, well, well. About time, buddy. Tired of your own plans failing over and over and over again? That's idolatry, church. Did you know that? Did you know that in your self-pity, in my self-pity, we can create a God of our own making that sounds right to us because of our own sense of fallen fairness? Well, God, I've wronged you by not listening to your plan, So my perception of how you'll receive my prayer in this moment is going to be formed off of my sin, not off of your grace. That's huge. And so David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Let's continue, because that's not even the main point, but this is what I've been struggling with all week with this passage. That's so good, but let's get to the end, because that's where it gets even better. So 
What David does with that strength is crucial. He doesn't make bold promises on himself that he'll make things right. Instead, he draws near to the king who gives, and he finds in prayer a precious promise to hold on to. Do you see that? David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. I mean, this is like, again, if this was a movie, this would have been the moment where everything went into slow motion. And, you know, Aragorn receives the sword of the king that was shattered and now reforged, and with it he'll lead his troops, right? The ephod here is the means of David to talk to God, and we haven't seen it, I think, since chapter 22. It's been a while. And the ephod comes out in slow motion because everything is going to be different when you turn your gaze away from your trouble and to the king who gives. So he says, should we go? And the Lord says, you should go, and you will rescue. That's a great answer, right? I mean, I'd love to have that experience every Sunday morning. Lord, should I preach? Yes, you should preach, and it'll be decent. (laughs) That would be good enough for me. But then again, would it be good enough? Because look at what, what he says to David is, pursue. You will surely overcome. You will rescue. It's going to work out. But he doesn't say, all right, David, here's all the deets. It's the Amalekites. They're at longitude 35. He doesn't give them all the details. And wouldn't we like a God who gives us all the details? Wouldn't we like to say, well, I'll just sit here until God tells me the exact next step to take. I mean, what we get in this passage, what David gets from the Lord is basically go, and he doesn't say where. Does it sound like any other Bible story you know? Maybe Abraham, generations earlier, go to a land. Okay, cool, what land? The one I'll show you. I need to put something in my GPS, Lord. Nothing's coming up for the land I will show you. I've never heard of that place. Same kind of principle here. Because when we receive direction from the Lord, we also need to receive it by faith from the beginning to the end. Receive it as grace, receive it by faith, and trust him one step at a time. So David started this track. He, he asks if he should shunt down, shut, uh, hunt down the enemy, and the Lord affirms that. Pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. That word surely couldn't be more precious in the ears of David, could it, in verse 8? David was in a dark place. There were fallen notions of fairness all around him. He chose to strengthen himself in the Lord, and the Lord was faithful to strengthen him. Is there something of your own life that is a dark place right now? Would you turn to the king who gives? Or would you turn to actions of fallen fairness? Would you turn to your own self-justification like David, perhaps thinking, hey, let me make a promise to you guys, I'll fix this. Or, or maybe you should just stone me because that's what I deserve. Or, or maybe you could just sympathize with me a little bit because poor me, he turns to the king who gives. So we move from a horrific homecoming to a providential rescue as promised by the Lord. And what is this next step? What is the, the GPS coordinates? The GPS that he, the address that is given is they found an Egyptian. Kind of sounds like a by-the-way thing if you just read this one verse at a time without knowing the rest of the story. They went to pursue and they found an Egyptian. Who cares about the Egyptians right now? Lord, we're looking for the guys who did this. Now, we're, we're reading the story and we know it was the Amalekites, not the Egyptians. So, Lord, why are you putting an Egyptian there? Of course, I know you know the answer. 
But look at verse 11 again. They found an Egyptian in the open country. They brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. It almost sounds like in isolation, they have this massive problem. They've been given this precious promise. And then they go, hey, look at this guy. Let's go help him out. It sounds like a sidestep, doesn't it? Do you ever get like kind of annoyed that maybe you have a certain plan that you want to stay on, but there seems to be all these sidesteps and they just keep coming one after another? They don't seem annoyed at this. What they're actually doing is fulfilling an Old Testament law to care for the foreigner, especially if they're in distress. And that was based on the fact that God had redeemed Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, given them a new home, and he said, you need to treat the foreigner the same way because you were slaves in Egypt. And it's a remarkable turn of events from the men who were ready to pick up rocks and kill David with them to finding an Egyptian and saying, we need to help this guy. Again, you know what comes out of this. You read the story. How easy, though, would it be for us to pass by this opportunity to serve when we are preoccupied with what God has already given to us? How we warp what the king gives us into something that is us-centered. See, their engagement with the Egyptian in this moment acknowledges the fact that they are on the Lord's plan and not their own that it was important for them to walk in obedience. This wasn't a sidestep or a distraction. This was the next step. I'm giving you this Egyptian. I let him get sick and wounded and left him for dead so that y'all could find him, give him some food, and in talking to him, find out what he really is. Yeah, he's an Egyptian, but he's an Amalekite slave. And he tells the whole story. And you can almost imagine the blood boiling as the men are overhearing David talk to this Egyptian. And he says, yeah, we went over here, we went to the Negev, and we burned Ziklag to the ground. You did what? I'm going to burn you to the ground. Because my fallen notion of fairness is you're the cause of this, and the only way I'm going to get any satisfaction is by sharing my pain with you. They don't do that. And David, you know, David's a man of war. We wouldn't be surprised if he said, good grief, you're just one of the slaves of the Amalekites. We're done with you and kill him right there on the spot. But he doesn't. He sees this as providential. That is the action of God within the workings of ordinary life. friend of mine often quotes William Temple, who said, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. I suppose that that word coincidence is a convenient way for us in, in our culture to dismiss the praise due to the king who gives, the king who is providential over all things, who can take a sickly and wounded Egyptian and make him, in one sense, the key to bringing families back together. Because he looked to the king who gives, David is finding in this coincidence a deeper and greater providence. Fallen fairness is blind to these kind of providences. If we function simply by fallen fairness, by our own judgment, we're only going to be on the lookout for what we ourselves can do to right a wrong, and we would miss the sick and wounded Egyptian because the singular focus can only be the satisfaction of our personal actions. We're only going to be satisfied if we act out justice that we think we deserve. 
And you saw, of course, what, that, what they recovered after this. They, of course, they, they went in in verse 16 and they had taken him down and behold, there was spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing all the Amalekites because of the great spoil they had taken. I mean, they were sitting ducks. There were upwards of a thousands of these Amalekites and only 400 of David's men that actually went to the battle. But they got everything back. Not only the wives and children and all that they'd lost, but additional livestock, more supplies that were stolen from other neighboring tribes. They had an abundance of additional treasures more than what they expected and hoped to recover. And what happens with this stuff? That's our last section. So we've gone from seeing the horrific homecoming to the providential rescue, and now we're looking at the sharing of the spoil. David returns to those that he left behind. Do you remember verse 9 through 10? We kind of passed over that for now, or earlier. Um, But now we need to remember, okay, there were some guys, 200 of them, that were too exhausted to press on. Now, this has got to be a little bit humiliating, right? That you think, okay, there's 400 other guys who are looking at him and going, oh, you guys aren't getting anything of whatever we find. You don't deserve it. You're not going to the battle with us. You don't get to share in any of this stuff. But David greets them. David gave them a job, too. He basically made them the keeper of the stuff. Husbands and wives are reunited. Fathers and children reunited again. But there's the matter of all the other treasure that they recovered on top of what they lost. And there's the matter of these keepers of the stuff that probably don't deserve any of that, right? Verse 22, all the wicked and worthless fellows. Remember, that's what they were, right? We saw that in chapter 22 when they came. They were the ones who were in distress and in debt. But they were also kind of the scum of the earth in some cases, The wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. The 200 were too tired to fight. They didn't do the heavy lifting. They didn't stand on the front line with the other soldiers. So this is fair, isn't it? David shares the cure to their preoccupation with their fallen fairness, though. In verse 23, David said, you shall not do so, my brothers with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. See, David, he endears himself to us again in this passage. Because he says, here's what's wrong with your focus on getting what's fair. You forget all that you have is by grace, is given freely by the king who gives. You didn't earn anything in this battle any more than the keepers of the stuff did. David doesn't cast out the wicked and worthless either, though. More importantly, the true and better David, the true king who gives, makes a greater promise to us who would lay down our sinful and fallen notions of fairness. John 6.37 says, Jesus was speaking. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That is, everyone who is mine, everyone whom the Father has chosen. Again, this notion of chosen in 1 Samuel all revolves around David. He was the one that God chose to be king. In Christ, those who are in Christ are chosen by the Father. And so all the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Even the wicked, even the worthless, even those preoccupied with their fallen sense of fairness. And listen to what David calls the wicked and worthless. The narrator calls them wicked and worthless because they were labeled that way, and they probably deserved it. But David doesn't call them according to what they deserve. He says, brothers, you shall not do so. Now, he does zing him in the end, though, because he says, who's going to listen to you guys on this? You're the worthless and wicked in the group, right? 
calls them brothers. And in that, he again shows us the true and better David who is to come. Who in Hebrews 2.11, we learn that he is the one who sanctifies us or, or grows us in holiness, makes us more like himself. And for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. The king who gives, gives exceedingly beyond what our own temporal circumstances might demand. He gives us beyond what we could think or imagine because he makes us brothers with Christ. That's a tricky theological statement to make. We go, well, I'm not equal with Jesus. Well, that's not what brothers means. What it means is that the share of God's affection, of his love, is poured out from Christ to us as well. That we are those who, as Paul says multiple times in the New Testament, We are those who are in Christ. We are accepted in the beloved. Because of what Christ did at the cross, he guarantees this adoption for us. And he sanctifies us to make us more into those who are adopted into God's family. We need to be sanctified from our desire for fallen fairness. And we can be because the one who became like us in humanity and weakness died as a substitute to reign as our king who gives. He who came as a lowly baby in a manger is the king who gives. He who sanctifies us, strengthens us. And does so by grace alone, unmerited favor, so that we can call him the king of grace, the king who gives, giving us the good that we don't deserve. In Christ's resurrection, we also see our confidence that we can lay down whatever we might demand of God in prayer or of others to satisfy what we think is fair. He frees us from that if we'll walk with him. Back to verse, back in verse 20, the spoil was claimed by the crew as David's spoil. And David is very clear about what's to be done with that. Not only does he share it with the keepers of the stuff, but he shares it with towns that were nowhere geographically close to what, the, what was going on with the Amalekites. He sends out the spoil to all the towns where it says in verse 31, all the places where David and his men had roamed, those who were allied with him. See, this is the ascension narrative of 1 Samuel. And in the ascension, we talked about how we saw the descension of David, him getting to his lowest. But now he is ascending. He is acting like the king who gives because he knows the king who gives. And he shares that. And so ought we. See, David made it a statute in Israel that those who stay behind to guard the baggage should share as those who go to the front line of battle. And in Christ, whether you are on the hypothetical front lines, however you define that as missions work or vocational ministry or whatever it might be, whether you are on the front lines or you are a keeper of the stuff, managing a household, raising a family, working a normal job, you have a share in Christ Because he is the king who gives freely. So church, let us be part of that kingdom here at Crosspoint. In Lima and Shawnee and Elida and Bath or wherever we find ourselves in the week ahead. Let's lay down any temptation to seek fallen fairness in those dark moments of life. Find Christ near you, hearing your prayer, sanctifying you, and being the king who gives. If you would bow your heads with me, please. We'll pray before we end our service in one last song.
our gracious King, praise you this morning because you are gracious. It's all we have. It's all that we have, Lord. Anything good, anything that the world might tempt us to think, to pat ourselves on the back for, that our own fallen sense of fairness would say, I've just gotten what I deserved and that's all I want. Lord, don't give us what we deserve. Be the king who gives grace beyond what we could even ask for. And may we, as those who bow our heads in prayer now, pray in such a way that we would put our faith in you giving above and beyond what we could think or imagine. And may we be those who trust that though the earth be shaken around us. Your amazing grace guarantees that one day we will see you face to face. That we were all wretches, we were all worthless and wicked apart from you. Christ has died to make us clean, to make us those who receive grace and proclaim it and share it. May we do so for your glory, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.